Listening to the Through the Bible Studio series with Pastor Nate Holdred. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, as we approach Luke chapter 20, we are in the moments or the week before the cross of Christ. We learned at the end of chapter 19 that Jesus, during that week, during the daytime, spent his time at the Temple Mount teaching the people. And the people were, as we learned in the final phrase of chapter 19, hanging on his words. That popularity from the people led to the religious leaders really wanting to persecute Christ and growing envious and jealous of the following that he was gaining. That's why we learn in verse 1 of chapter 20 that one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority. Now, this is an official Sanhedrin delegation, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders who come up to Jesus, which incidentally are the exact three offices that Jesus said would reject him and ultimately kill him, and on the third day that he would be raised, Luke 9.22, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. And their question is very simple. They're watching Jesus teach and preach and gain this massive following, and they want to know, where did you receive your official authority, both to teach, but also uh, to cast out the, or drive out the money changers from the temple? Luke doesn't focus in on that detail as much and give us all of the details, but the other gospels especially show us the whip of cords and the driving out. Luke alludes to it briefly, but they want to know, where did you get the authority to drive out the money changers? Where did you get the authority to teach? He answered them, verse three, I also will ask you a question. So Jesus here will answer the question of authority later in the text, actually. He'll allude to his authority as coming from God, that he's the son of God, and that he's in the line of David. But that will be a roundabout way in which he'll answer the authority question. Here, however, he wants to prove the illegitimacy of their question. They really weren't concerned with where he got his authority. They simply wanted to stop his ministry. So he says, I will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. So Jesus here is demonstrating the 
illegitimacy of their question by trying to draw out and prove the reality. Look, you're just asking because you want to persecute, but you're not really willing to honestly consider the answer that I'll give. So tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And notice that there is no concern for the truth from these religious leaders. Their only concern is to say, well, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe? And if we say from man, then the people will stone us to death because they were convinced that John was a prophet. So for their own personal expediency, they remained silent. And Jesus said to them in verse 8, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So we know that Jesus' authority was from the Father and also simply essential to his identity. Uh, He had always had authority. It was intrinsic to him. It was always his. But they refused to be honest, so he refused to answer. And probably there's some kind of application for us concerning approaching God with an honest spirit and an honest heart. If there's a an unwillingness to really hear the answer, then perhaps God isn't as prone to speak and to open up the answers to us. Here Jesus will not answer them concerning his authority because they are obviously not asking from a genuine place. He began to tell the people this parable in verse 9. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants who went into another country for a long while. Now, as Jesus tells this parable, he's telling it from the backdrop and from the context of a conflict with the religious leaders. And this parable is actually going to be about the religious leaders. And that's why it's very interesting that Jesus began to speak about a vineyard, because in the Old Testament, a vineyard was often used to describe the nation of Israel as a parable for the nation of Israel. And those who took care of the vineyard were the spiritual leaders that God had installed, the priests, the elders, the scribes, the prophets. And here in this parable, it will be not the prophets, but other religious leaders, spiritual leaders who are rebuked for neglecting the care of the vineyard that they should have been giving. And so Jesus here uses an image from the Old Testament, that of the vineyard, to illustrate the lack of obedience to God that the religious leaders in Jesus's day, and really for all of or much of Israel's history, the lack of obedience that they had unto God. So Jesus said, a man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, verse 10, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Now, these servants are clearly symbolic of the entire 
prophetic age. Many of the prophets who came to the nation of Israel suffered greatly for their message. They were persecuted and beaten, mostly by those who were practicing a false religion and false worship. So these servants come, wave after wave. One servant was beaten. Another servant was beaten and treated shamefully. And another one was wounded and cast out. Then the owner, verse 13, of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. So finally, in this parable, the owner of the vineyard, and the owner can only be a picture of God the Father, the owner says, what will I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. God had sent wave after wave of prophet. He had sent clearly, as you read the Old Testament, more than three prophets, but Jesus talks about three servants in the parable because three gives you a full and total picture. The total prophetic voice had gone to the nation of Israel all the way up to even John the Baptist himself. The father then says, I'll send my son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, verse 14, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyards to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. They are utterly shocked by this story. Part of the shock, I think, must come from the fact that this is a surprise ending to the parable. The, the idea that the owner of the vineyard, after sending wave after wave of his servants, would then say, after those servants had been beaten and shamefully treated, instead I'll send my son. Maybe they'll respect him. And the shock of it all beyond just that simple statement, is that the tenants actually believe that if they kill the son, that somehow the inheritance will be theirs. That's not, of course, how an inheritance ever works. You don't kill the true heir and expect the inheritance to be yours. But of course, Jesus is sending a message to these members of the Sanhedrin. He is saying, listen, you want to know where my authority comes from? My authority comes from the fact that I am the son of the father. Wave after wave of prophets has been killed or have been killed by people just like you. And now here I am sent from the father and you yourselves are going to take my life. And so Jesus here gives this parable to illustrate really in one sense the history of the nation of Israel. But he looked directly at them, verse 17, and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, this is from Psalm 118. They would likely sing this 
within the next few days in connection to the Passover. And actually here, it's relating to Jesus's rejection. And the concept is, it's better to be, more than likely, the concept is, to be broken than it is to be crushed. It's better to be broken by the truth of the gospel, by the truth of the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's better to be broken by that than it is to be crushed by that truth and reality in eternal judgment. And so Jesus makes a very bold declaration. Yes, I've been the rejected stone, but I will be the chief cornerstone. The scribes, verse 19, and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So now we have a very clear detail concerning their heart and attitude about Jesus. They want to take his life. And at this moment, they begin to plot as to how to take his life, but they find no opportunity to do so because they fear the people and Jesus is incredibly popular with the crowds. So they watched him, verse 20, and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? So the religious leaders want to find some kind of opportunity to accuse Jesus. And they figure that if they can trip him up in his words, then they'll have some accusation that they can bring against him, or at the very least, some kind of statement that they can use to turn the crowds against him. This is not a hard thing for us to imagine. It happens to persecuted believers all throughout the world, and pastors, preachers that uh, their words are considered and then reported, and those very words that they use to bring a blessing and the message of the gospel are words that are then used to bring persecution against them. This group comes and listens to Jesus, and the trap they try to set for him is by asking him a question concerning taxes. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not. Now, the political situation at the time really did create a massive and hugely divisive issue when it came to taxes. The Pharisees were anti-Rome and bit, did pay taxes, but under protest. The Sadducees were for Rome, uh, along with the Herodians, and so they paid taxes, probably not incredibly gladly, but at least willingly. And the concept here really isn't so much the amount of the taxes, but just the principle of the actual tax in and of itself. There's some indication that their income tax was 1%, along with ground taxes and poll taxes here and there. Those are small taxes by today's standards. 
So they were not so much saying the taxes are too high, but the question is, as citizens of the nation of Israel, is it right for us to be paying taxes to the Roman government? The people obviously did not like paying taxes to Rome. So this puts Jesus in a bit of a bind their thinking. What their thought simply is, if he says you don't pay taxes, they can report him to Caesar. And if he says pay taxes, then the crowds will despise him. But he perceived, verse 23, their craftiness, and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? Just show me a coin of the day. He made them, this is very strategic, he made them cough up the coin. He didn't produce one. Now, I'm not going to make a big deal out of that as if to say, well, Jesus didn't have a denarius. I think that the point here is that he's really setting them up beautifully. He asks them to produce some coinage. He holds the coin up in the midst. He says, whose inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. In other words, when they said, the image on that coin that you are holding, that we just produced from our own pocket, that image on the coin is Caesar's. When they said that, it was a self-confession that they were using Caesar's monetary system. So in one sense, when Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he's simply saying, listen, you are living inside the Roman government. You are a beneficiary of their laws, of their government. You might not like it but it's what you're living in, so submit to it and render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But then the question that we might ask is, is there a limit then to what a believer is to give to Caesar? Is there ever a point where Caesar asks too much? And I know the context I'm ministering in, the United States, you know, we got our start by some revolutionaries, many of them believers, who, you know, said enough is enough and refused to submit to the king of England. Their argument, apparently, was that there's a natural law above the law of the king and that the king was breaking the natural law. Therefore, he was worth revolting against. He was taking away the basic natural laws and rights and privileges that belong to humanity. So that point of decision came for them to break away from their Caesar. But here Jesus just says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He holds up a coin. Whose inscription? Whose likeness is embedded upon this coin? And then likewise, the question would be, whose likeness, whose inscription is embedded upon you. 
You see, God made man in his image. And God has written upon our hearts. We have a conscience. And so we are to render to God the things that belong to him. We belong to God. What a beautiful answer from Jesus. There came to him, verse 27, some Sadducees after that whole event, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. So these Sadducees come with a question to Jesus. They really think they've got him now. The Sadducees were a religious group who really were in great power and authority during that day and age. They did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in the angelic realm. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They were well-educated. They were sophisticated. They were influential. They were wealthy. They come to Jesus, quoting from the Old Testament, and playing off the idea of Leverite marriage from Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 and 6. Uh, the concept there is that your husband's brother, Leverite marriage, from the Latin word levir, uh, your husband's brother. And so the concept there, according to the law, was simply that if a man was married to a wife, he had the man did all of this property that was that belonged to him. If he died and had no offspring, then the question would be, where would his property go and who would carry on his name? Well, if he had a brother, then his brother was to marry the widow and have a child with her, or at least attempt to. And if they had a child, then the first child would receive the inheritance and be the name that would continue for the deceased brother. So these guys give Jesus a ridiculous situation where you have seven brothers who all died with sharing the same wife and never had a child. And they want to know whose wife in the resurrection will she be? They had probably used this whole story so many times on Pharisees who did believe in the resurrection and said, look, the idea of life after death is ridiculous. Who in the world is going to be uh, this woman's husband in the resurrection? Whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And they probably really thought that they had tricked Jesus as well. And Jesus said to them in verse 34, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. 
Now, this is beautiful because Jesus simply corrects their concept of what it will be like in the resurrected state. He says, no, you've got it all wrong. They're not going to marry or be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels. They'll be like the sons of God and as sons of the resurrection, and they're not going to be given in marriage and all of that. So it's not even going to be a problem for one, uh, which is helpful to us because it helps us really see in a maybe a fresh way that the biblical heaven doesn't repeat the error of many cults and false religions out there, which promote sort of a heavenly orgy kind of idea. Jesus said, no, that's not the case. In fact, there's not even going to be marriage in heaven. But, verse 37, that the dead are raised. Remember, their concept was that there was no or is no resurrection from the dead, no life after death. So Jesus said, but that the dead are raised so that you know that there's life after death. He said, even Moses showed. And the Sadducees only believed the first five books of the Bible. They only believed Moses. And so Jesus goes to Moses and said, in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. Jesus here basically says, hey, you guys remember reading Exodus 3, right? And I know that's a portion that you guys believed. And remember there in Exodus 3, when Moses went up to the burning bush, remember how God said, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. And I am the God of Jacob. What he's saying here is, do you remember how even though those guys had been dead and off the scene for hundreds and hundreds of years at that point, God considered himself the current, not the past God of these men, but the current God of these men. In other words, they must, before God, be alive. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? So now Jesus here will put them to the test. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, and this is from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Now the Teachers of the law in Jesus' time had said the Messiah would be merely a descendant of David, and that's it. And Jesus, of course, was a descendant of David, but also the eternal Son of God, pre-existent for all of eternity, and of course, existent before David. So here, Jesus looks at a psalm where David is referring to, to the future Messiah as his own Lord. So Jesus is saying, hey, how is that the case? You see, in that day and age, a father would never call a son who came after him his Lord. No, to refer to him as Lord meant he came before him. This is a little hint 
that the Messiah would be a man who came from the line of David, but would also be God who came from heaven itself and was eternally pre-existent before David. Scripture does, of course, confirm this concept of Jesus being fully God and fully man. He's called the Son of God, but also called the Son of Man. He is the first and the last, the Bible says, the Alpha and the Omega. He's referred to as the Holy One, the Lord of Glory, the Everlasting Father, And five times in the New Testament, he's referred to as God. Hebrews 1 verse 8, John 20 verse 28, Matthew 1 verse 23, Titus 2 13, and Romans 9 verse 5, just directly spoken of as God. Jesus has the attributes of deity in that he has omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, and is eternal. So the claims, the attributes, the names. Jesus is the great I am, John 8 verse 58. And so here he's trying to put that idea in their minds a little bit more. I am the son of God, God the son. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So much of religiosity focuses on the external appearance rather than inner devotion. If you really think about it within Christianity, there is really, honestly, no Christian Look, you as a believer will look like the people in your culture so often, but so many of the religions of the world, there's an outfit that goes with that religion. Oh, that person is this religion or that religion, and you can see it based on what they wear, but that should really not be the case within Christianity. There is no biblically prescribed dress. We're to be modest, of course. We're to be content, of course. Uh, But there is no Christian look. And these guys, Jesus said, they love to look a certain way so that people will think that they are spiritual, but actually in their hearts, they were horrible. They were devouring widows' houses. Now, speaking of a widow, it says in the first few verses of chapter 21, that Jesus looked up at that moment and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. Talk about a contrast from the religious leaders walking around in their wealth, attempting to be impressive. This woman by herself, very anonymously, puts in one sixty-fourth of a day's wage about seven and a half minutes of wage she takes and puts into the treasury. Her gift didn't make much of a difference to the bottom line of the temple, but she refreshed the heart of Jesus. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. 
for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Jesus here is saying, this woman, by my appraisal, has put in more than all of them. Yes, you could count up the money and it's only two small copper coins. They put in more in that sense. But she put in more. My opinion, my economy, my appraisal is that she put in more. She was sacrificial. She gave by faith. She's trusting me. She laid it all on the line for me. As David said years earlier, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And this woman was of the same spirit and mind as King David so many years before. She laid it all out before the Lord. And Jesus saw her giving, but was also, don't miss this, blessed by her sacrifice. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateoldridge.com.